Brothers and sisters, please open with me in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, we're continuing in our sermon series together, meeting with God in worship as we focus on what happens when we worship in the study of God's Word. And so uh, today we are looking at Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 11. And while you're turning there, let me share with you a little bit more about my childhood. Now, as many of you already know, I was raised as a Mormon. And so I was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, But as a Mormon, I was raised knowing that Sunday was the Sabbath day. Sunday was the Sabbath in which we were to attend our local church meeting. And we were not to engage in the work of this world, but to be those who were seeking to worship Christ through the church. Now, this indeed was also seen through the church in its articles of faith. Uh, In the third article of faith, the uh, LDS Church confesses, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. You see then how our obedience to be saved through the Christ of Mormonism included our obedience to the laws of God. And this included the Sabbath. So for me, growing up in Mormonism, we were required to keep the Sabbath in order to ultimately enter into eternal life. This then, among my family, developed into a list of do's and don'ts. What could we do on the Sabbath? What can't we do on the Sabbath? After all, our salvation depended on it. But praise God, the true Christ saved me from such legalism. Because my eternal life doesn't depend on my obedience to God's law, but only on Christ and believing in Him as the one who kept God's law and who died under the curse of my disobedience as he hung on the cross. So my my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, not through my obedience to God's law. But here is my question for us this morning. How then should we think about the Christian Sabbath as Christians? And what does this mean for our church's worship in God's presence? Well, the answer to these questions is found in Hebrews chapter 4. So let's read together then. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. Where we read, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering God's rest... Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, as to Israel. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, brothers and sisters, before we continue, let's once more pray for God to illuminate our minds and to help us receive these words from him. Let's pray. Father, We have gathered together today in worship, knowing that you are present with us. We have indeed, through this time together, been lifted up into your very dwelling place of heaven so that you'll meet with us in worship. And now we pray that in your presence you will speak to us and that we will not only hear your truth, but Father, we will receive this truth by faith and then rejoice in this truth as we see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ our Savior and all of the blessings that we receive through His grace. So, Father, may You be with us and remove any distractions from our minds. But help us so that Your Word will renew our minds and transform our lives as we glorify You for such a great salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. And so we pray and ask for all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what does the Sabbath mean for us? Our answer becomes clear through three steps through this passage this morning. We take one step at a time. First, the first step we take is in verses 1 to 5, where we read of a promised rest. But then the second step we take is in verses 6 to 8, where we read of a forsaken rest. And then finally, the third step and the final step we take through this passage this morning is in verses 9 to 11, where we read of a Sabbath rest. So there's a promised rest, a forsaken rest, and finally, a Sabbath rest. But 
we come here in chapter 4 to really the middle of an argument that is being made here through the book of Hebrews. Of course, Hebrews itself was written to Jewish Christians who are suffering and struggling, which is why they were being tempted to forsake Christ and to return to Judaism. And so this is written to encourage them to faithful endurance, since Christ is greater than anything the Jews had under the Old Covenant. And so starting in chapter 3, we see Paul expositing, explaining, and applying Psalm 95. This is almost a sermon from Psalm 95, which reminds God's people of Israel's failure to believe in God while they were tried and tested in the wilderness. You may remember back in the Old Testament that after God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, they quickly rebelled against God and they died in the wilderness, never entering into the promised land that God had, had given them and the rest then in the land that they would receive so that they would worship him there. So this psalm serves as a warning to God's people, which is why then Hebrews continues to bring these truths out for these Jewish Christians and ultimately for all of us. So as chapter 4 begins, the focus is on God's promise of rest. That's what we see there at the beginning of the first verse, right? Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. But what is this rest? Well, this rest is greater, a greater rest than Israel's rest in the promised land. We know that we're not trying to somehow recapture the land of Israel in the Middle East in order to call it our own as Christians, right? This was the tragedy of the Crusades. You see, the promised land was a shadow. It was a type. It was a picture of the greater spiritual rest that comes in Christ. And this brings us all the way back to creation itself, where we first hear of this promise of rest. So let's turn back all the way to the beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2 and remind ourselves of this seventh day of creation in verses 1 to 3. Because after God's six days of creative work, we come to what God does once he finishes forming and filling his creation in this world. Here we read of God resting and being refreshed from his work. So he rests from his work and he's refreshed from his work. This is what we read in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. You see, then God rests in this day 
and he blesses this day, the seventh day, and he sanctifies it, which means he separates this day as holy since he rests from his work. So as you think about creation, what is created on the sixth day? What's the very pinnacle or apex of God's creation week? But humanity, mankind, created in his image. Mankind's created on the sixth day in his image to work for him by filling the earth and subduing it in dominion over it. And then the very next day, the seventh day, God sets apart to reveal the rest that mankind would also enter into once our work is complete. God enters his rest and sets it apart so that we too will enter his rest when our work is complete, as his image bears. And so this then becomes humanity's pattern. There would be six days of work followed by a Sabbath day of rest, which was a weekly reminder of God's promise of rest with him. And this weekly pattern is then later written by, written by God for his people on tablets of stone in the Ten Commandments when he frees his people from slavery to enter the promised land. So you see, as God originally placed Adam in the Garden of Eden with work to do and a weekly Sabbath day that was founded on God's rest, so he once more places Israel in a promised land of Canaan with work to do and a weekly Sabbath day founded on his rest, as well as his redemption from slavery in Egypt. But let's then return to Hebrews with this in mind. We come back to Hebrews 4 and answer this question. What is the promise of entering his rest? This rest, brothers and sisters, is living with eternal life in God's presence. This promise of rest is eternal life in God's presence. And it's this very life that was lost when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in sin because they could not eat of the tree of life and live forever in his presence, which is why they were then driven out from the Garden of Eden to work in frustration with thorns and thistles under the curse of sin and death and God's wrath. You see, we could no longer live in God's presence. We could no longer enter his rest in our sin. Yet God's promise of rest remains. As he commits in love for us to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ and gives us this promised rest through the eternal life that Christ freely gives us. So it is as Christ carries out the work that we cannot do in our sin. As he obeys God's law and carries out God's commands. And then dies under the very curse of God we deserve for our sin with death under his wrath as he hung on the cross. That this promise of rest remains. 
So we are not forever lost in our sin, under the wrath of God, without any hope of eternal life in God's presence. But through Christ, this promise of rest remains. Praise God! This rest remains. God saves us then from the curse of death and gives us eternal life in Christ when we believe in Him. But we are also waiting, aren't we, for the full and final enjoyment of our eternal life in God's presence when Christ returns to usher in the world to come. That's what we saw last time. We look at Hebrews 10. Because there's an already and not yet tension in the Christian life. We've already been saved, and yet the fullness of our salvation we have not yet entered into. We're already living in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, and yet we're not living in His presence with Him as we see fully when He returns. And the same already not yet tension is found in God's promise of entering his rest. After all, what does Jesus say to us in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30? Those wonderful words. Where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you see, when we come to Christ by faith, our soul finds rest in him. No longer do our sinful works condemn us, but we enter into God's rest through Christ. Yet, there's another sense in which we have not fully and finally entered into God's rest in the world to come. Which is why Hebrews here calls Christians to persevere until that glorious day. And this is why verse 1 then ends with a warning. Let's go back to Hebrews 4 and continue reading in verse 1. Read, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, to come short of this rest. You see the call? Let us fear. There is a healthy fear of God that we should have in light of His holiness and righteousness and justice. Because the truth is there are those who claim to be Christian and we even join together with God's people in the church. And yet, what do we see here? They will come short of this rest. Why is this? We go on to read in verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You see, the gospel of salvation and eternal life in Christ was preached to us as it had been preached to them, Israel. Because there's only one way that we will be saved and receive eternal life, and that is through Christ's 
sacrifice for us. Do you see then how Israel heard this gospel promise? They heard the gospel of Christ as it was preached to them through God's revelation of the Old Covenant and this promise of God's rest to come. But what was the problem? Christ's gospel did not profit them. And it didn't profit them since they didn't have faith in God's promise to them through Christ and His coming work of salvation for them. You see, hearing the gospel alone does not save us. It does not give us entrance into God's rest, but you must believe in Christ so that your soul will profit and provide you with everlasting rest in Him. This is what we see in verse 3. In verse 3, we go on to read, For we who have believed do enter that rest since we are not under God's wrath. But Psalm 95, verse 11, is then repeated there as this sermon from Psalm 95 continues. We read, As he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is repeated to emphasize what God swears will happen to anyone who fails to believe in Christ that they have no hope of entering into God's promised rest. So 90, Psalm 95, 11 is repeated here to emphasize what God swears will happen to anyone who fails to believe in Christ. That they have no hope of entering into God's present rest, but what will they have? What will they endure? What will they suffer? but God's wrath for their sin. And this is true. We go on to see at the end of verse 3, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is true even though God's rest began when he finished his creation work at the very foundation of the world, and his rest is then continued throughout human history. Is a rest that remains... Which is why Genesis 2 is then quoted here in verse 4. Genesis 2, 2 is quoted to remind us of when God entered his rest. Right? Look at verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. See, in Genesis, God entered into his rest and set apart the seventh day of creation so that we too would weekly rest in worship until the day when we would finally join him in his rest. But Israel failed to enter this rest in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in his gospel of eternal life to come in Christ, which is why they disobeyed God and why they then didn't enter the earthly rest of the promised land. And so we read at the end of verse 5, and again in this place he repeats Psalm 95 again, they shall not enter my rest. So listen to me. 
we too are like God's people living in the wilderness who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and His eternal life preached, but are waiting to enter into our promised land of heaven. So the question for you this morning, are you believing in God's gospel promise of rest in Christ? Because it doesn't matter how many times you hear this gospel message preached. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church and worship with God's people. This rest is only found and entered into through Christ, by faith. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ through faith. This is the gospel message. It gives us rest. You too can have this rest as you are reconciled with God through Christ. This is a rest that God promises us through Christ and His grace. So we begin with this first step through this passage and see a promised rest, but then we move in verses 6 to 8 to take our second step where we read more of this forsaken rest. This rest was forsaken. It's forsaken by Israel in the wilderness. And yet, we read in verse 6 that some still must enter God's rest. Again, look at the verse. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. Do you see how the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ opens the very entrance into God's rest? And this offer remains for the people of God to believe in Christ and receive rest in Him. All can become the people of God by believing in Christ and receiving rest in Him. Yet, God's people Israel forsook this promise of rest. And they did not enter the promised land because of their disobedience in the wilderness, which is what we go on to read in verse 6. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. See, they began with the gospel promise of rest in Christ preached, but they didn't have faith in him and continued trusting in him as they struggled in the desert. Do you see then how our faithfulness to God through the trials and tests of life proves that our faith in Christ is true. There are those who hear the gospel message. There are those who consider themselves Christians. There are those who belong to the church. And yet they don't have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So they don't persevere. You know when they don't persevere? When times get tough. When God tests them through trials. See, we must persevere, not by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of Christ. As we simply cling to Him in trust with faith. 
because one who truly believes in God's promise through Christ will patiently wait and endure the temptations and tribulations of life until the time when we will finally and fully receive his promise of rest. Brothers and sisters, this is why Israel's disobedience in the wilderness became a warning to God's people when King David wrote Psalm 95. That's why this is a, a, a sermon on Psalm 95, an exposition of this psalm from David. Think about it. When did David write this psalm? Generations after Israel in the wilderness had died and failed to enter God's rest. Because after all those years, David speaks to his generation of Israel. And what does he say? Verse 7, we read, Again, God designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will, harden his, or if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, after all these years, David says that like Israel in the wilderness, Israel in the promised land could still enter or still fail to enter God's promised rest. Which is why David warns Israel in his day that they too can forsake his rest through their unbelief and disobedience. So David uses the wilderness generation to warn his generation. And he says to them, today, today was the day that God gave them to hear his voice in the gospel and believe in his promised rest to come. And listen, today is our day for us to hear God's voice in the gospel and believe in Christ. So we too will enter into God's promised rest. But you see, since this earthly rest of the promised land was a shadow, a type, a picture of the greater spiritual rest to come in Christ, we see that even when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, they did not receive this rest, which is what we read in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them this rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. You know something interesting? It's masked over in our English translations. If you look closely at verse 8, the word Joshua there in Greek is actually the name Jesus. It's Jesus. Because Jesus and Joshua are the same name. What we find in verse 8 then is Joshua is also a shadow or type of the greater Joshua to come in Christ. Jesus. So this Old Testament lesser Jesus had not given them rest through the promised land. But afterwards, God through David spoke of another day where the greater Jesus would give us eternal rest in God's presence. What then is Hebrews telling Christians through this exposition of Psalm 95? Do not harden your hearts as unbelieving Israel did when they rebelled against God in the wilderness. 
Because we too will then not enter God's promised rest in heaven. You see, we too struggle and suffer in this world, and our hearts can harden in sin when we fail to hear God's voice and the gospel is preached. We need a true and persevering faith in Christ. So if you are hearing God's voice today, do not harden your hearts, but receive this gospel promise of rest in Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Receive Christ's forgiveness of sins as your Savior. Because it's only through Christ that this promise of rest is not forsaken. So the first step this morning was a promised rest. Then we move to the second step of a forsaken rest. But then finally, in verses 9 to 11, we come to our third and final step, which is a Sabbath rest. Here's the question. How should we live until our coming day of eternal rest? And what do we read in verse 9? But beloved, excuse me, going back to chapter 4 there, Chapter 4, verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. There remains a rest for us. And the Greek word for rest here is sabbatismos, from which we get the word Sabbath, which is why in many of your translations what you read is, in verse 9, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest. For the people of God. You see, we too have one day in seven which has been set apart by God to rest from our work and worship God. But Christ has now transformed our Sabbath rest. Because unlike the Sabbath in the Old Covenant, which brought rest after six days of work, our Sabbath in Christ gives us rest on the first day of the week, which then empowers us to work the other six days. And through Christ's resurrection from the dead, we are given eternal life to then continue living in this world until we fully experience God's rest when he returns. See, what happens through Christ's resurrection is a new creation has begun, which has changed our Sabbath day from the end of God's creation week to now the beginning of Christ's new creation. And we read more about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's turn together back to 2 Corinthians 5 and read verses 16 to 21. Because here we see that Christ has reconciled us with God so that his new creation will be ushered in through the preaching of his gospel message of reconciliation through Christ. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 21. Therefore, Paul writes, from now on, 
We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Then we have this great summary of the gospel in verse 21. For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we begin each week with a day of worship in God's heavenly presence, followed by six days in the world, where we then carry out our work as his ambassadors. Since he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so when we keep the Christian Sabbath, we are anticipating the eternal rest that we will enter into in the age to come. Do you see then how through our Sabbath observance, we are being prepared to enter into the fullness of this rest in God's presence? This is a time of preparation each week for the eternal future we have in Christ. Well, why does this Sabbath rest remain? Why do we continue to observe this Sabbath in Christ? Well, that answer is given in verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You see, Christ is the one who has now entered his rest as he has ceased from his works, as God did from his. But this understanding is heavily debated. Because what we have here is a pronoun, he. And this is often interpreted by Christians today to refer to Christians. And this is even reflected, by the way, in your translations. So, for example, the ESV translates this, for whoever has entered God's rest. The NIV translates this for anyone who enters God's rest. The New Living Translation translates this for all who have entered into God's rest. But the pronoun here is a masculine singular pronoun. Which is why it's best translated as the New King James translates it, he, or possibly as the New American Standard translates it, the one. You see, throughout this passage, the people of God are consistently referred to in the plural. So you have let us in verse 1, you have we in verse 3, you have us in verse 11. Now you have he in verse 10, that is Christ. But there's another problem. Because in verse 10, there's a parallel between he who has entered into his rest and ceased from his works and God who entered into his rest after ceasing from his works. So here's the problem. Why would the works of a sinner parallel the works of God in creation? 
How can our ceasing from dead works compare to God's resting from his creative works? Finally, what do we see in verse 11? We have not yet fully entered this rest. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. What does verse 10 say? He has already entered his rest. The entering of the rest in verse 10 was completed in the past. Because Christ entered into this rest. So we must persevere in our faith in Christ so that we will one day join with him in his rest. We then will one day enter our rest because Christ has already entered his rest. This is the logic of these verses. So what did Christ do in his earthly ministry? We see here that by becoming a man, Jesus successfully carried out the work that God created us to do for us. So that we would then enter into his rest with him. And once Christ's work of redemption was accomplished, he ceased from his works in his death, and he rose again with resurrection life, entering into his eternal rest. So Christ ascended to heaven, resting from his works as God did from his, which is why we are then promised to enter this rest when he returns. And so until then, we observe a Sabbath day which has been established on the first day of the week, rather than the seventh day. Think about it this way. What day did Christ die on the cross? Well, we all know. What do we call it? We're about to, we're, we're, we've entered into that season of celebration. Christ died on Good Friday. But what was Friday? Friday is the final day of work before rest. Christ died on the last day of our work each week since he completed his work for us. And what day did Christ enter into his rest? Sunday, which was the beginning of his new creation since he rose from the dead with resurrection life. What day then lies in between? Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, which was buried with Christ in his grave. And so we have this change in the day of Sabbath observance through Christ. Which is why there are other New Testament verses which speak of the end of Sabbaths along with the other Jewish holy days because they were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So I appreciate the words here from the biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss. And you don't often hear me quote from Voss, but... Hopefully, his words will be helpful to us. Voss writes about this. Inasmuch as the Old Covenant was still looking forward to the performance of the Messianic work of Christ, naturally the days of labor to come uh, to it come first, and the day of rest falls at the end of the week. But we, under the New Covenant, look back upon the accomplished work of Christ. We, therefore, first celebrate the rest in principle procured by Christ, although the Sabbath still remains a sign looking forward to the final eschatological or eternal rest. 
in Christ. A Sabbath rest then remains for us on the first day of the week. And so this passage comes to a completion in verse 11 with a final call to be diligent so that we too will enter this rest. Let's look at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So we began with a let us statement in verse 1. And now we end with a let us statement in verse 11. You see, when we are tempted to forsake Christ, we can fall from him, we can fall away from him through our disobedience, and this will bring about our own destruction. Because this testing of our faith shows us who we really are. Are we true believers in Christ? Or are we false converts who prefer this world in our sin? Well, Israel serves as a warning to us. We can be identified as God's people by hearing the gospel and following Christ. But there will be times of trial that will test us and expose if we are truly trusting in him as we wait to enter his promised eternal rest. Do you see then how until Christ returns and we enter this eternal rest, a Sabbath rest remains to worship in God's presence and be renewed by his gospel through our worship. This is why the New, throughout the New Testament, the church worships God on the first day of the week. And this is why the Apostle John calls this Christian Sabbath the Lord's Day at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, until we enter our eternal rest, God gives us a Sabbath rest in Christ to worship Him. God has given us a Sabbath rest in Christ to worship Him. And it is through keeping this Sabbath rest that God is reminding us of our future rest to come. And that he is preparing us to enter into this eternal rest in his presence. May we then keep the Sabbath day holy by devoting ourselves to worship him on the Lord's day. Because God has set apart this day, the entire day, not just the morning, to rest from our work and worship him. May our entire Lord's Day then be focused on Christ and on his gospel promise of rest. You see, Christ not only opens the entrance into God's presence for us to worship him as a church, we see here he has also sanctified the day in which the church gathers to worship him as his people and meet with him. And so this is the very rhythm of our lives by beginning each week in worship and continuing to work through the rest of the week until we worship again. And on and on it goes until our one day of rest becomes an eternal day of rest with God.
But let's be honest, how countercultural this understanding of the Sabbath is today. After all, we live in a 24-7 society. Sunday is not different than any other day of the week. And most believers today do not recognize Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. But here's what this debate boils down to. Has God given the Sabbath to mankind universally? Or did he only give the Sabbath to Israel specifically? Because if he only gave the Sabbath to Old Testament Israel, then there no longer remains a Sabbath rest for us. It was for Israel. But what did Jesus say to the Pharisees in Mark 2, verses 27 and 28? Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not just for Israel. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. His Sabbath rest remains. And consider what we lose without God's Sabbath rest. We lose a day that is set apart to remind us of our future rest to come and which prepares us for entering this eternal rest in His presence. How then we all need this weekly Sabbath rest to worship in God's presence and be renewed by His gospel through our worship. This is why we as a church have an entire chapter in our confession of faith on the Lord's Day. It's chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it in a while, to go back and read our confession again. This is also why we as a church make this covenant in our covenant, this commitment as a church. Listen to the commitment. We agree to cease from our own works on the Lord's day unless they are works of necessity, and to sanctify the day by consistently attending the meetings of the church, fellowshipping with one another in our homes, performing acts of mercy, as well as engaging in personal devotion and domestic religion. This is how Christ has called his church to live. But listen, living this way today will cost us. Let's just be honest, it'll cost us. Because we may not be offered positions or promotions in the workplace. We may not be able to play sports or participate in events or activities which are scheduled on Sundays. We may not be able to, we may not be respected by fellow believers who deny this biblical teaching of the Christian Sabbath. But we must not compromise because the cost to our souls is far greater than any cost of hardship in our lives. So I return to where I began. How is our observance of the Lord's Day different than the legalistic Sabbath keeping of my childhood? Listen, as Christians, our focus is not on a list of do's and don'ts in order to be saved or to maintain our salvation. But our focus is on Christ and on his free salvation through grace, which is why we devote ourselves to gather on his day 
the day he has given us to worship in God's presence and be renewed by his gospel in our worship. You see, when we live this way, we are remembering God's promise of entering his rest in Christ, and we are preparing ourselves to enter into the fullness of his rest when he returns. And this then gives us the proper perspective to know what to do and what not to do on the Lord's day. May we then be a people who have, in God's setting apart this day, observed this day of rest so that we will be those who look forward to the fullness of this rest to come in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we meet with God and worship each Lord's Day so that we will be a people who enjoy this rest forever. Let us be then a people who keep the Sabbath day holy in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and for his love which is poured out for us through his death on the cross. What glories we receive through his resurrection life as he has now ushered in or is ushering in a new creation through the preaching of his gospel. May we then be those who enter his rest and experience this rest through observing his Sabbath until he returns. And this rest will be our everlasting joy. Oh Lord, may the Sabbath not be a legalistic chore to us but a precious gift to us through the heart of Christ. Because it's in this Sabbath that we are reminded of your promise of rest and that we are prepared for our eternal rest in Christ. May we then count the cost and follow Christ. And may in doing so, may we be those who are eager to meet with you in worship on the Lord's Day each and every week. So Father, we pray and ask for all these things through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.